Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is the campaign manager for Senator Raphael Warnock's successful campaign runoff last week, Quentin Volks. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Lomi, Henson Shaving, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. So please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, it's bad for the country, but there's going to be a lot of high comical moments watching the Republicans trying to run the House next year. You know, Howard Baker once said that, uh, that, that running the Senate is like herding cats. Managing the House will be like swimming with barracudas. It's a toss-up whether Kevin McCarthy is going to get the 218 votes to be Speaker or not on January 3rd. If I have to bet, I guess he will because there's no viable alternative, and he'll do anything, like anything, second-born, whatever it takes to make concessions to get that 218th vote. But the killer will be if he's forced to accept a rule change, making it easier to what they call vacate the chair. That means any time a small band of these barracudas move to unseat the speaker, which Democrats would all vote for, they have no brief for Kevin McCarthy, they don't even like him, uh, that they can do it. And uh, that means that every day, he's not going to be walking on eggshells, he's going to be hearing, hearing combat boots behind him. Now, as you know, James, they have no serious agenda. They want to reduce the deficit and cut taxes. You know, they want to diet and eat chocolate at the same time. They're divided on Ukraine. They have no real working relationship with the Senate. And they're going to focus on investigations. And not, not very good at that. Remember what a disaster their Benghazi and IRS probes were uh, seven or eight years ago. They're all nothing burgers. So Hunter Biden is not going to carry them to the promised land. And uh, I, I think it's going to be, as I said, it's going to be comical. Uh, it's going to be bad for the country. And one more point I'd make. The incoming chairman of the Judiciary Committee will be Ohio's Jim Jordan. He was an assistant wrestling coach, as, as we pointed out, Ohio State, when team physicians sexually assaulted athletes. Six wrestlers have said they told Jordan and he did nothing about it. If that is proven, and if you look at Ohio State, which has a they, they, there's an entire report which they haven't fully released, if that's true, that meant he, meant he covered up a crime. He will be chairman of the Judiciary Committee. It's really going to be a pretty ugly scene, James. Why is this bad for the country? The country needs entertainment. It's the middle of winter. I don't. I, I, the fact that they're goofy and, and can't govern, that, to me, that, that's doing a, a, a service to the American people. As you spoke. And by the way, they do have an agenda. They told you, Kevin McCarthy said their goal is to shut down the government in order to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. I, I mean, 
I, I, and of course, he's like a pretzel. He's weak. And now you're seeing McConnell can't stand McCarthy, can't stand Trump. And what this needs and what we're going to get is we're going to get some, some sunshine. We're going to get some light so people can see exactly what these people are. Now, the Democrats, I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to bring some yawn and some knitting needles and some of that smart food popcorn and sit there and watch. And it's actually going to interrupt. It's, it's not good for my porn watching schedule because this is just too much more fun. I, I can't wait. I, I, you know, it's like having a daytime World Series game. You're going to be able to watch this in real time. So I'm, I, I, I think this has the chance of really exposing the whole party for what it is. And not very much about anything. I agree it has the effect of exposing them. And the reason I said it's bad for the country is because there's things that we should be able to get done, even with one house controlled by one party and one the other. They ought to come back to the child tax credit. They shouldn't uh, default. They shouldn't shut down the government. These crazy people may just do that. That has all kinds of terrible consequences. They shouldn't be battling over aid to Ukraine. We just ought to support the Ukrainians. So I do think it has bad effects, but it is going to be fun to watch. You're right. Because, and I, I, you know, there like is a myth. I keep hearing people saying there's this small band of crazies, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobard, Matt Getz. No, there's not a small band. It's more like a football team of nuts. Offense, defense, special teams, reserves. I mean, you look at the members on that Mark Meadows was texting, which just came out this past week, right before January 6th. Almost 30 of them are still in the House. And James, that doesn't even include members like Louisiana Clay Higgins, which you know a little bit about. So it's a it's a really motley well, I, crowd. Yeah, I, I don't want to argue the point. I just I think it's I think the consequences of this are going to be potentially excellent for the country because they can see what these people are, and they can't do that much harm. But they ain't going to do anything because, but you know, the Senate's not going to go along with this cockamamie stuff that they come up with. And you're right. And by the way, the January 6th report is coming out soon. And, you know, with talking is. points, God, I, you, you got to believe there's a lot more of that stuff in there. And it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's a cuckoo, crazy political party. I'm sorry. It just, it is. Uh, are there some people in there that are not cuckoo and crazy? Well, sure. But they're, 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 not, they're not a majority, I can tell you that. And, you, and you, we're going to watch it. I, I, every civics teacher in America suggested, do like we did when we were kids and, you know, they had the moonshot and they would bring the TV in the classroom and we'd watch the moonshot. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's what they need to do now. Bring This is a great civics lesson for the entire nation. <laughs> Well, my, and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who said that uh, if she and Steve Bannon had uh, headed the January 6th insurrection, uh, they'd have been packing heat, they'd have brought guns, and they would have won. Now, I, I, I just leave it to our viewers, our listeners, rather, to decide what that means. But, you know, Marjorie, James, I do have one idea. Marjorie, as Go you ahead. know, Marge, as we affectionately call her, was uh, kicked off all committees uh, last year because of uh, the terrible things she said and did. And... McCarthy has said he, he's, he's going to put her back on committees. This week she said um, in New York, talking to the young Republicans, uh, she, she said that CVS and Target uh, were, were stocking dildos and butt plugs. Now, I go to CVS you know, three or four times a week. 
I go to Target, I don't know, maybe a couple times a month. I've never seen the dildo and butt plug section, but <laughs> but Marjorie was able to find them. So you know what? Maybe Kevin McCarthy could name Marjorie the head of the sex toy committee uh, well, because she clearly has reason, great expertise in that. The reason you can't find it is because you're not looking for it. The reason she knows about it because she was looking for it. All right? I mean, I, mean, I can't find the the... the Things that relate, well, my wife, my daughter sent me to get something, but, you know, it's, I, I don't know where all the women's health issues uh, products are in CVS because I don't have much demand for them. And you don't have much demand for butt plugs and dildos, but she must. And, you know, and she has a, a, a kind of weird uh, history, I think, as a gym instructor, fitness guy or something that uh, got pretty close to her. So, you know, you don't think she's the devout family values Christian that she says. I'm kind of shocked, James. You know, I'll tell you, on McCarthy's quest to get to 218, he has enlisted uh, his old, sometimes pal, Donald Trump, who's been calling members. And from what we can see and what's been reported, Trump is having no influence with him. Uh, the people who are against McCarthy ain't listening to Donald Trump. That's that's symptomatic of, I think, Trump's faltering influence elsewhere. He is losing to Joe Biden, no, not by much, but in polls that are done, uh, his favorability among even Republicans is slipping. He announced, what, a month ago? What, what's he done since then? You, I, I, I may have missed it, James, I, other than, you know, sit and pout in Mar-a-Lago. You know, so spate of polls come out. You know, the Wall Street Journal poll has DeSantis beating the crap out of it. I mean, what's happening is he's going to jail. And to paraphrase Bill Clinton, his numbers are dropping like a turd in the well, right? And he's sitting there in in Palm Beach, you know, as a scared, frightened old man who every time the phone rings, it's another disaster. He could be the nominee or nothing. Maybe run for the president of his cell block. That's about it. Well, that's good news in the one hand, but it's not such good news in the other hand because some of those same polls that show Biden beating Trump, um, not by as much as you'd think he would, but beating him, show him losing to DeSantis. And if the Republicans nominate someone else, if I'm a Democrat, that makes me even more worried about Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, you, you, see, you see these polls that these huge numbers of Americans and, and significant number of Democrats would prefer that he don't run. And, and that sort of reflects in, in the head-to-head. -head. I, I think he's been a wonderful president. I think he's he might have accomplished more in two years than most people accomplish in eight. But it, the public is less than enthusiastic about him running for re-election. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And for you loyal listeners out there, you don't have to go to CVS or Target to look for that stuff because if you need to find it, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the person who can get it for you. She is the expert on uh, CVS and Target dildos and butt plugs, whatever they are. Okay. You know, of all the campaigns in the country, none was more important and better conducted 
than Raphael Warnock's runoff victory uh, last week. Our guest is Quentin Folks, the Warnock campaign manager. Quentin, thank you for being with us. Let me first get you to go through the democratic, the demographics rather of this critical victory. Um, just on the surface, turnout uh, was always down in a presidential year, but comparing the two runoffs that Warnock had, it seems it was down by about five hundred thousand this time. Why was that, and what was the impact on the uh, on the result? Uh, you know, I think that we first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I think that you know we're pleased with the runoff uh, turnout. Uh, last time um, there was a, a drop. This time there was a, a little bit of a drop, but we still got higher than expected turnout uh, in the runoff. Uh, and I think partially one of the things is that you couldn't expand the electorate this time around. Last time you could register voters after the general election uh, because of SB 202, we were stuck with the same electorate um, that we had. Uh, That's the voter the suppression bill, right? That is that is a voter suppression bill. So some of the most strict provisions of that bill. Uh, were aimed at the runoff, shortening the time frame, essentially gutting vote by mail, making it really impossible to run a vote by mail program. So all those voters uh, who would normally vote absentee uh, couldn't turn in a, a mail ballot or there was a really short time frame to do so. Um, and so, you know, we we immediately pivoted uh, to just turnout mode and ran basically what I would consider four weeks of just all out turnout uh, to basically any registered voter in the state of Georgia. So uh, given the time frame and what we had to do, reeducating voters on moving election dates, we were very pleased. Well, you did an amazing job. But now, let me just stick with that voter turnout issue, because some of the right wing and Republicans are saying, see, all the clamor, all the yelling about it, it proved it really didn't matter. Uh, Warnock won. They turned out the vote. That's just bullshit, isn't it? I mean, that that voter suppression bill had 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 an effect. It made it harder to register people, shorter time frame, uh, uh, some uh, uh, fewer drop boxes. I mean, it, it really it really hurt, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think any time uh, you see bills like that, they're, they're aimed with one goal, um, you know, shortening the time frames, uh, the number of early vote days that you had. I mean, essentially, uh, in the state of Georgia, we had to, during the runoff, we beat the previous single vote in an election day every single day from when early voting started. So the record was like 200,000 before. I think Saturday, the Saturday that we sued for, uh, that we took the, the state to court over, uh, the campaign, the DS, uh, in, the, in the party of Georgia, um, uh, 70,000 people voted on that day, uh, that one Saturday. Uh, and we went from, our voter protection team went from no uh, counties doing that Saturday of early voting to 27 counties standing up uh, a Saturday of early vote in which we yielded 70,000 votes. And then subsequently, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you know, we're talking 200,000, 300,000 uh, votes a day, uh, just shattering the record for what early vote was before. So those, the law was absolutely um, detrimental, uh, removing the drop boxes, taking away the vote by mail. Um, so yeah, I mean, just because we were able to win in an environment doesn't mean that that, that, that the environment <laughs> that they put us in to have to do that uh, wasn't detrimental to, to, the, to the outcome. You don't have any estimate, do you, on how many more voters might have been able to vote without those uh, without those um, uh, suppression measures? No, it's really hard. And I, you know, I heard, um, I heard James tip a hat to the pollsters um, the other day. They did get it right. But you, I think people should really, when you say get it right, not only are they getting it right in Georgia with a changing electorate when we really don't have anything to look at, 2020 and 2021, that was during COVID. So the way people voted during COVID 
was highly absentee, right? People, people use vote by mail a lot. They use drop boxes a lot. So just the method that we knew during the runoff from 2021, this many people voted by mail uh, versus this many people voted in person, we can really compare that because we were really in a completely different time because COVID wasn't happening. And so it was really hard for us to sort of put together what we thought a model electorate might look like. We knew that there would be substantial drop off. And so we, you know, you, you sort of aim low and, and, and clear the bar. So we had a more pessimistic model for turnout uh, because we knew that if it was better than what we expected in ways that were good for us, then the result would be good. But, you know, even in the more pessimistic model, uh, we were still able to clear the ceiling of what we needed. And what was the black turnout as a percentage of the vote? And how did that meet with your expectations? Uh, I'm asking about the runoff, but also the general. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that we were we knew that we needed to get around 29 percent of the white vote. I think that the, like starting from there, I think a lot of people talk about like the black vote. I think we knew what uh, and I'll come back to that because it is important. Yep. Uh, we had sort of modeled 29 percent of getting the white vote. Um, we knew about four percent. Uh, could be Hispanic and API, and then we knew the rest of it. We really had to make up uh, with the African American vote uh, for us to have a chance. So we held what we wanted, but you know, I'll be honest. Quite frankly, during the the, the general, um, the black vote wasn't where we wanted it to be. Uh, we knew that there was way more votes that we could pull out of Fulton, um, Gwinnett, DeKalb, particularly DeKalb. I mean, you look at Augusta and Richmond, um, uh, Savannah. Uh, and then also, I think that we'll get into this too, or at least I hope we do, but like the African-American vote in rural Georgia, in Doherty County, uh, in some of these places are huge, Macon and Bibb. People are like, well, the African-American vote is the Atlanta metro area. Um, there are a lot there, uh, but I think Democrats for a long time have been sort of uh, disregarding the vote that you can get, the African-American vote that you can get in rural places. And so we hit those places extremely hard. Um, during the runoff and were able to get the support up, up where we needed. And so, you know, not only during the runoff did we expand, um, you know, our white vote, our suburban vote, we also expanded the African-American vote. I'm really proud of that. We also did a little bit of work um, to to really push forward the AAPI vote, which wasn't where we needed it to be either. And so when you're talking about winning and losing by one point, uh, everything is important. I think a lot of times people are like, well, you could just invest more here. Um and sort of forego something else. But you can't really do that in a state like Georgia. If I if I pull off the lever of either of these things, um, you know, you lose something. And then again, that 29% of the white vote that we needed to get, if you get 26% of the white vote, uh, that means you have to make up 4% of the vote somewhere else. It's virtually impossible to do in the AAPI community, just given the demographics and the numbers, which would have meant that we needed to really turn the African-American vote out four percentage points higher. And at that point, you you know, you get into all the, the low propensity voters. One thing that we were able to do just because of the nature of campaigns and how they work is that during the runoff, we were able to raise a substantial amount of money. Uh, and when you do that, you can expand well beyond your modeled universes, meaning during the general, we, we might have talked to African-American voters that had a turnout score of 70 and a support score for Warnock for, you know, 80, 90 plus. Uh, meaning that we know if we can get those voters to turn out, they're going to vote for us. But when you have the kind of resources that we did during the runoff, you can begin to talk to voters that have a propensity score of 10, meaning that they rarely turn out. These people might have only turned out in one election over the past 20 years. But if they were a registered voter in the state of Georgia because of the resources that we had, 
uh, we were able to communicate with them. And I think that that really also put us over the edge. We were able to expand and talk to a wide variety of people that we might not have been talking to or reaching because of resources during the general. James, pick up on this. Okay. Well, we have, first of all, Quentin, uh, we're <clears throat> delighted to have you on the show, and you're getting ready to be a household name. So before you get to that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, where did you grow up, and how did you come to have a – you're 33 years old, right? Yep. How did you, yeah, you know, yeah. how, how did you get to be the most successful campaign manager of the cycle? So let, let's talk about your youth and uh, and your progression as you grew into this awesome place you're in. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a small town called uh, Slack County, uh, Ellaville, Georgia. Um, uh, it's right next to Plains, Georgia, uh, which is where President Carter's from. Um, I grew up sort of enamored with politics because of what President Carter was able to do. Uh, his English, te- my English teacher in high school uh, happened to be his niece. Um, and so I, I, I was very fortunate to be able to, you know, uh, go to Sunday school uh, and watch President Carter. And just I was just fascinated with politics um, at that point. I went to uh, President Carter's alma mater, Georgia Southwestern and America's Georgia, uh, graduated from there and immediately moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a um, uh, internship with uh, Steny Hoyer, uh, the Democratic whip from Maryland. I had an aunt that lived in Maryland and just so happened uh, that he needed an intern for uh, his congressional office. And one of his uh, interns that was in the Capitol office quit. And so I was able to work in the Capitol office. Uh, and from there, uh, just doing back and forth odd end things, I got in touch with uh, someone in Speaker Pelosi's office who, when a job at the D-Trip came along, they recommended me uh, for the DCCC. Uh, and at that point, I was a desk at the DCCC. Uh, I worked there. Uh, and that was a cycle where Democrats just got destroyed. I, I remember my my pod, as we call them, very uh, vividly. I had uh, Nick Rahal uh, in West Virginia 3. Uh, it was when Martha McSally took uh, the seat from Ron Barber in Arizona 2. Uh, and it was just a very, very bad year for Democrats. And so I, I got accustomed to Democratic politics uh, in a red wave year. Speaker Pelosi lost her her speakership during that year. Uh, and then after that, uh, I went to Emily's List briefly, uh, and that's where I met Ann Caprera, who's my mentor. Uh, Ann Caprera then went to Priorities and brought me on to Priorities USA with Guy Cecil, uh, and I, I became political director at Priorities USA um, during President Clinton or when Hillary Clinton ran for president. Uh, and then from there, after that, uh, she obviously lost. Uh, president Trump was elected, uh, and then Governor Pritzker, who we knew from. Uh, our time at Priorities as a major donor decided he wanted to run for governor of Illinois. Um, so I moved there. Uh, I was his deputy campaign manager under Ann. Uh, we won for Governor Pritzker. Uh, I stayed in Illinois for a couple of years. Uh, and then when this opportunity came along, uh, Senator Warnock reached out to me. Wow. What, what a, I hope people paid attention to that story because that that's the kind of background that 33, that, that that's how you become successful. And, you know, I point out to, to everybody, there are two kinds of people uh, in our business. There are people that uh, say that they are political operatives and they lost, and we call those professionals. There are people that say they're political operatives and they never lost, and we call these people liars, okay? <laughs> Everybody's had their share of tough cycles, Quentin. So, Quentin, how much money did the Warnock campaign itself raise combined general and runoff? Uh, about $180 million. God, God. And that doesn't count the coordinated campaign. <laughs> yeah, we were, we're, 
<laughs> yeah, we we were very fortunate with our our partners. Uh, the the DS invested a, a ton uh, in our race to help us get over the over the finish line, and so we we were very fortunate. But yeah, uh, massive massive campaign, uh, indeed. You know that that's that you know I, I would point out to our audience that that this this young man was thirty three years old and was had you know had control over a budget like that. It, it's it's quite a remarkable thing. Uh, this is a, a ongoing debate. It's actually not much of a debate in my mind, but you hear it all the time where people say, you know, you, you Democrats, you need to quit chasing suburban w- women and this and that. And if you just had a core-based democratic message, you would actually be more successful than, than trying to appeal that. From everything that I've read about your campaign, uh, Senator Warnock and yourself decided to run a more universalist campaign and people were sending me to ads all the time and you, you, you tried for a broad appeal as I see it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that part of it was, um, you know, when I when I took over, we didn't know who our opponent was going to be um, because the Republican primary was going. Uh, it it emerged as as Herschel Walker, uh, and I think that Republicans tried to take him out before, and 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 honestly leaked a bunch of oppo on him because they didn't quite necessarily want him to be their nominee. So we knew about all these things, uh, but the one thing I am proud of is that immediately. Our, our approach wasn't like, well, Republicans are going to have a hard time getting Republicans to coalesce around this guy, so let's just turn out our base. Our strategy from the outset was that Republicans are going to have a hard time getting Republicans to coalesce behind this guy, so let's go try to win those Republicans who aren't going to coalesce. Uh, and so we did. I mean, I think that you know, part of it, one thing was clear uh, from all of our polling from the very beginning. Georgia wanted a Republican Senate. Uh, so we knew we faced that headwind. Absent of President Biden, uh, we knew that Republicans uh, or Georgia as a state uh, wanted uh, a Republican-controlled Senate. And so we knew we, were, we had to sort of fight against that interest um, there. And part of the way to do that was to ingrain Senator Warnock uh, in the work that he'd been doing uh, across the aisle uh, with, 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 with people like Senator Marco Rubio, uh, Senator Cruz, uh, Senator Braun, uh, and we, we were able to do that successfully and, and really run ads. But, you know, I, I think we should begin to push back on the notion that you have to decide one or another, because it, if, you, if you look at it in that way, it basically sort of suggests that when you're talking to people who, who just want to know that you partnered with Marco Rubio on an interstate, everybody drives on the road. Rural voters, black voters, that 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 ad served two purposes for us, right? Like it it served a purpose to to sort of tell Republicans that look, this guy isn't playing politics. He's willing to work with anybody, even Ted Cruz, uh, to get something done for the state of Georgia. But at the same time, the issue that we're talking about is not just an issue that white rural voters care about or only you know white Republican voters care about. So I, I think we have to move beyond that sort of idea that if you are running a campaign that's talking about working across the aisle, that you're somehow betraying uh, the Democratic base and what they care about. You can do both. And then even with instances like uh, abortion, for say, Herschel Walker allowed us two folds on that issue. One, we were able to run it on a strict policy position for the Democratic base that we knew cared about it. And then on the other hand, we were able to run it as a, and it was out there that like, this is somebody who He's a hypocrite when it comes to this issue. He's saying he doesn't support it. He believes that there should be a nationwide ban, yet here he is paying for multiple abortions. So it worked because it ingrained it on both halves and really allowed us to speak to both sides of the aisle with the same topic. 
But it looks to me like you won your counties by more, i.e. DeKalb, and lost some of their counties by less, i.e. Cherokee. And, you know, I think that was a pattern that you did pretty good in the Republican-leaning larger counties, you know. And, yeah. And, and that was the result of a, of a deliberate strategy on Senator Warnock and your part. So my, 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 hat's, off, my hat's off to you because I think y'all executed, you know, a, a, a superb campaign. Albert? Well, I, Quentin, let me just pick up on two things. Uh, you're 33. Um, when my dear friend James Carville was 33, and uh, we all know what he what he ended up doing. He was just starting with some friends of mine to get involved in a campaign in Louisiana that ended up getting 9% of the vote. So you are way ahead of James Carville at this point. <laughs> and secondly, I would say I got a certain affinity for Plains, too. I met my wife in Plains, Georgia. So, uh, you know, it's a good it's a good launching pad. Um, the other day I saw Stacey Abrams campaign manager said that basically she was the one that uh, laid the groundwork for, um, Senator Warnock to win. You know, I, I think, um, you know, with all due respect, I, I haven't really acknowledged that anywhere in, in it, and it's not my style to Sen- Senator Warnock laid the groundwork for Senator Warnock to win. Okay. Um, just, 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 you know, uh, and I think that, um, clearly, uh, the work that leader Abrams, uh, and her team put in. Um, should not go unnoticed. Uh, and I think that uh, Georgia is a winnable state because of the work that Stacey Abrams, uh, Leader Abrams, has done uh, in the state. But, you know, we ran the campaign that we needed to run for Senator Warnock to win. Um, and, and that's what we were focused on. Well, you had a great campaign. You also had a great candidate. I think, however, that the, the National Democrats are a little bit overly optimistic about Georgia. You all, as I say, ran a great campaign. You had a great candidate, but you lost almost everything else. You lost all the statewide offices. Georgia is still going to be a tough slog in 2024, isn't it? I mean, I think uh, as long as Georgia remains the way it is now, it will always be tough. Uh, But I think that, you know, there is a a, two Democratic senators uh, from the state of Georgia uh, and a Republican governor. And as long as that remains in play, uh, for whatever reasons, um, whether it be the quality of candidates that are being put forward, the campaigns that are being run. I think Georgia is a competable place uh, for Democrats. I just think it has to be a place where um, the people who are on the ballot are, are exciting voters and actually saying something to them um, that they care about. Uh, and, and I think we have to pick and choose where to take shots. I mean, if Republicans are going to continue to nominate people who quite literally just don't care about, about Georgians or, quite frankly, know them, uh, which is also something that we didn't do. We didn't. We never tried to say that Herschel Walker wasn't Georgian. Uh, there was a lot out there about the Texas homestead exemption and, and Herschel Walker living in Texas. Uh, you never saw that on TV from us. We never tried to. I mean, he 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 won a Heisman Trophy for the University of Georgia in a national championship, and Vince Dooley's last words were, uh, "Vote for Herschel Walker." So uh, you know, I, I think that we never wanted to try to try to do that, and so I'm really proud of that too. Uh, but Georgia is a competitive state. It will be difficult, no doubt. But I think that the quality of the candidates that are being put on the ballot, as well as the messaging, uh, if you're talking about stuff people care about, it, it's something that people will will be willing to entertain. So I think Georgia can um, continue to expand upon just the two senators that it has for the Democratic base. Uh, and I'm excited about the future for Georgia. Quentin, what effect did Joe Biden have on your race? You know, I think that um, the president, um, I, I think he was, obviously he had won the state before. Um, and so, you know, we knew that it, it wasn't fatal. I think anytime you're in a midterm, it's, it's challenging. Um, it's always challenging for the party in power and that that's not unique to president Biden. 
Um, but, you know, we saw President Biden, uh, there was a big task that he had to focus on. Georgia is not unlike everywhere else where, you know, people, COVID uh, was there. And I think President Biden gets the uh, credit uh, for the work that he did to get us past the pandemic. Um, the economy uh, was top of mind for Georgians. And what we saw is President Biden get more popular uh, in the state of Georgia. His numbers actually ticked up. His approval ratings ticked up. Um, with with the with the same natural indicators that you always have when gas prices go down, um, you know, when things start getting cheaper, uh, your numbers get better. Uh, and so that also to me was sort of an, an, an ingration knowing that like you see President Biden's numbers ticking up uh, and knowing that people are also willing to entertain. It wasn't just like a hatred uh, for for President Biden. Um, it, that is definitely not. So I think that Herschel Walker and his team wanted President Biden to have more of an impact, which is why. 98% of their ads mentioned Senator Warnock voting with uh, President Biden. Um, but I don't I don't think it was fatal at all. And I think at the end uh, here, President Biden uh, was in a position enough to not be a negative impact on the race at all. Uh, and his team let us run the campaign that we needed to run in order to win the state of Georgia. And so uh, gracious to them for that. Well, you ran a great campaign. James, you can come in and defend yourself. Right, you I just, yeah. out why you were 42 points behind Quentin right. uh, when you were 33. Right. That's right. You know, I, I, what I look for in a campaign is overperforming. All right. You lost the headline statewide race. The Democrats lost the headline statewide race by seven and a half points. All right. You won your race by almost three. That's that's 10 points. That You know, when we told there are no swing voters, there's no place to operate. That's, that's just not true. A good campaign is going to make a difference. And you ran a good campaign and your campaign overperformed. And, and, and you didn't have, you, know, you had a lot of things that, that you had to work against. You had these, these, these voter suppression laws. You were in a, you know, off year, but generally historically does bad. And, and my hat is off to you, Quentin, and to mostly to, to, to Senator Warnock for, for you guys overperforming and saving the United States Senate in a race that was going to be difficult from the start. So it, it is a big honor to have you on our show. Uh, we're going to follow your career close, and when you become even bigger and more famous than you are, we hope that you, you remember us and come on the show again. I think it's been really insightful for our, for our listeners, and I think that you're going to be an inspiration for a lot of young people in politics because you, you didn't come up the Ivy League track. You didn't come up because, you know, your, your aunt knew Stenny Hoyer. That was about about what it was, and so... I think you're a great leader. I think you're an inspiration. Proud to call you a friend and delighted to have you on our show. Thank you, James. I mean, I, coming from you, those words, obviously, you know the weight that they carry. And so I, I will never uh, say that I'm going to be the next James Carville. I think we're all going to keep pushing to, uh, to try to get there. But uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. Your words uh, absolutely mean everything to me. And Al, it was a pleasure to meet you today and talk to you on the podcast as well. Quentin, it was my pleasure, and I will, if you won't, I will predict you are going to be the next James Carville, and we're going to be watching watching <laughs> closely. And, and, and when you get there, I, I, Lord knows where we're going to be, but I want you to come back on this show. Thank you so <laughs> much for being with us, Thank Quentin. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's start off with these terrific questions we get from our terrific listeners. George in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
asked James, this should be for you. He said, I've, he's long thought Val Demings and Tim Ryan had bright futures. They turned out to be really exceptions uh, to the blue resistance, but they lost. And he's heard rumblings that they were not as fully supported by the DSCC and the DNC as others. Uh, is that true? And what future do they have? Well, first of all, both are, are friends of mine, are good friends of mine. And, uh, you know, Val, the Democrats just didn't do that well across the board in Florida. And, and you know, we're going to have to take a, a long, hard look at that. Kim had, don't, don't take the wrong lesson here. I mean, DeWine won by how many points? Probably a 20. Lot. 20. Okay, you can't, it's the same thing we talked about Quentin with. You can overcome seven and a half. And, you know, Ohio is a Republican-leaning state. Uh, but I, 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 I don't, I, I think Tim has a, 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 a really good future. And I think Val has a really good future in, in, in politics. I don't know if another statewide run is in the cards. It, it may be. But, boy, when, you know, you have a Democratic president looking for cabinet members or looking for House leadership or something like that, I mean, I treasure my relationship with Val and, and treasure my relationship with, with Tim Ryan also. So I, I, it's a good question, but I think Tim had some, some tough headwinds uh, at, you know, in the gubernatorial side. So I, and, you know, Sherwood Brown's coming up. Yeah, and George, uh, it is a good question. And I think the harsh reality question. is that Florida and Ohio now are red states. Uh, they are not purple states. They may be, you know, reddish, leaning slightly purple. You know, Kind of Any Democratic country, map you come up with, uh, you, you know, Ohio uh, and Florida would be a bonus because they, they just appear. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. The second, Steve in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Wow. Ooh, Scranton. Right on a county. <laughs> he said, now we officially have 51 Senate seats. I guess we do, depending on how you count cinema. Uh, does that make reconciliation easier? How many more reconciliations does the Biden administration have for the last two years? No, Steve. Unfortunately, it does not. Reconciliation has to pass both houses not just the Senate, and you're never going to get a reconciliation bill through Kevin McCarthy's or whoever is the House Speaker's uh, house, because as James said earlier, uh, they are totally, uh, when it comes to productivity, uh, they're going to be totally worthless. So I'm afraid you're going to have to wait at least two years for any kind of a reconciliation bill. Yeah, well, I love Scranton, man. I spent a lot of time there in our uh, previous, uh, coming from St. Paul, one of the things I've always wanted to do in my life is go to the Minnesota State Fair, which is regarded as the best state fair in the United States, and it takes place in St. Paul. So I got a lot of good friends in Twin Cities, so maybe I'll come up there and see you. And he comments on, well, we're just, we're fine on reconciliation, so let's move on. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. This is Gordon in Norwood, Michigan, who says, notes that you said you assigned the book Amazing Grace to your students. Uh, he wants to know if that was the one written by Eric Metaxas, and was it written yeah. before he says Mr. Metaxas lost his mind? Right. Now, the book I recommend for my students is Buried a Chain uh, by Adam Hoshio, and the movie was made based on that called Amazing Grace, which is, I think, the most famous song in the English language. And I'm so glad you asked this because I'm so passionate about this. I, I could never get my students to be interested in the climate to the extent that I thought they would. And so I, I asked Sean Valence, the former chairman of his department at Princeton, what's a period in history where people acted 
against their perceived short or medium-term interest. And he said the British anti-slave trade movement. And so I, and he recommended Adam's book. And when I read it, I, I had this epiphany that climate is the only major political, social, or anything else that does not use emotion. All right? And what the British, what Wilbur Wilberforce and, and people like that did, and it's all in there, that, that John Newton, who was a slave ship captain, wrote Amazing Grace and Repentance for the sins that he had committed. And they used Wedgwood China. They used emotion at every level. And, man, if anybody is listening to this, we're not winning this climate battle. Uh, but Doug Brinkley, who I just talked to yesterday, has a book coming up. We're actually going backwards because the whoever the, the people that understand this, there's no song. There's no bumper sticker. All right? There's no slogan. There's no flag. Every freaking university has an alma mater. They have colors. They, they, they pull, they tug your emotion. Climate doesn't do that. And I think so much of this crap comes out of the faculty lounge. And, you know, not by title tables and temperature charts does a person live. You need to have that emotional context. And the, the climate movement has none. And, it, and, it, and it's been very, very detrimental to it. So you, you ask me something, and I, I, you can tell I, I, I am really passionate about it. I, I've, I've talked to people in Hollywood. I've talked to people in Wall Street. And everybody says, yeah, James, you're right. But no one freaking does anything. Somebody give me a song. You know, what did Archimedes or something, what did he say? Give me a lover and I can move the world. Give me a song. I can move the world. I'm just going to defend the faculty lounge by pointing out that Sean Malentz is in the faculty lounge. There's some Yeah, faculty Sean lounge. might be in the faculty lounge, but he don't buy it. He don't buy all Amy that in Seattle, Washington says, what do you think about the idea that Democrats don't show up for all the potential upcoming committee uh, investigations in the House? No, no, Amy, a bad no. idea. You want to show up and you want to reveal them for what they are. And uh, I think uh, we looked last time, and I remember Elijah Cummings just devastated uh, the, um, uh, the stuff that uh, Trey Gowdy was trying to do, the phony investigations. Big decision that Akeem Jeffries has to make as a new leader. I don't think it's been made yet. There's kind of a fight on the oversight committee for whether Jamie uh, Raskin or Jerry Connolly would be the ranking Democrat. Both are smart. Both are able, I think, to more than handle their own against the, um, the Yahoo from Kentucky who's running it. But there also is a question of who's going to be the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, where Jim Jordan will be probably the biggest demagogue of all. And I'm going to be perfectly honest, and I'm sorry, Jerry, Jerry Nat, Nather may have had a great service. He ain't up to that job. And the very sensible thing that I believe a Pelosi would have done, Connolly at Oversight, Jamie Raskin uh, at Judiciary, they both can take on uh, the buffoons who are running those committee. But you can't uh, – I mean, you, you got to show up because uh, you got a much better case and, uh, and don't duck. They're going to show up. And there's all kinds of groups that are being formed now. Uh, you know, they think they're just going to, you know, run this play – with, with no defense, and you're exactly right. That's that was the Kevin McCarthy move on the January 6th committee. All right, he he wouldn't say anybody. Okay, so that that and they say, well, it was one sided. Well, it was one sided because you wanted to be one sided. They offered you everything in the world that you would want, everything. And and that's another reason why I can't wait for January the third. Oh my God, 
I'm, I'm gonna have beer on ice and popcorn, and I'm watching the seventh game of the World Series every day till they get this thing done. We ought to have watch parties. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> they should set up a, a national Zoom for people to look at it together so we can all laugh together. Oh, man, I wish Walter Dellinger was still with us. Can oh, you imagine boy. how much he, he could have been the impresario for those those uh, watch, watch Zoom parties? Wow. Absolutely. You know, um, uh, what? go ahead. New Year's Day is the first, right? Second, third, no, fourth. Okay, well, there'll still be going on our, our January 4th show. Well, our January 4th show, we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about what happened on January 3rd. Absolutely. That's going to be a big day. It's going to be Absolutely. a big lead in. John okay. in Sonoma, California, and I'll place oh, you up, James, asked if that. you think that, 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 that Kristen Sinema's switch to independence is ideological, conviction, or is it more attention-getting? Look at me. Well, she wasn't going to win a Democratic primary. I, it, 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 she would have been stupid to, 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 if she wants to run for re-election. I don't know if she does. I don't think she can be re-elected, but she's sure not going to get the Democratic nomination. I, and it's sort of assumed that if she runs the independent, it, it will hurt Democrats. Actually, you look at a number of, she's probably got a better favorability among Republicans than Democrats in Arizona. She does. So I don't, don't buy just out of the chute that that's, that's necessarily a bad thing, but and, and by the way, she waited till after Georgia. I mean, I, I, I don't know I'm supposed to give Christian Sinema credit for anything, and she's not my favorite senator, but she waited till after Georgia. She said she was going to caucus with the Democrats. And uh, any number of people have said that she's really smart. I mean, she made real contributions to the gun legislation and made real contributions to the infrastructure legislation. I mean, I know she, she likes attention and She's flashy and she does things and and the same-sex marriage uh, legislation too. Yeah, you know, and she—I don't, I don't know why she thinks hedge funds and carried interests are, are, are popular, but uh, she'll learn that when she runs for re-election. But it, I, I don't want to be in a position of defending her, but there's things about this that that people should take in mind before they get too too judgmental. Yeah. Uh, next, we have Theodora and Charlotte, North Carolina. Says, says ask what what do you think about Biden's proposal for changing the primary schedule? I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I think it was stupid. It was clearly the political people over there said, okay, what primary can we put first that if we do have a challenger, uh, there won't be any problem? And that was the sole consideration. Didn't think about what it meant. And then they came up with this absolute, totally phony rationale that blacks deserve to have a greater role uh, in the nominating process. I agree blacks deserve, that's the core of the party. Guess what state, guess what, what group basically picked the last three nominees? South Carolina blacks, Barack Obama, when he clobbered Hillary Clinton in 2008, that paved the way for the nomination. Hillary Clinton, when she run overwhelmingly with black South Carolinians over Bernie Sanders, that paved the way. And 2020, an absolutely, uh, I mean, to call it moribund would be to exaggerate uh, the Biden campaign at that state. South Carolina brought him back on the way of the nomination. South Carolina blacks have had the greatest influence of any group, any state in the last three nominating uh, contest. So for the White House to say we're doing that in order to elevate blacks is just dumb. I, th I happen to think that New, ha New Hampshire, for all of its imperfections, 
is a good place to start. It's retail politics. You got to meet real people, and they got a lot of independence. It's not such a bad idea for Democrats to have to appeal early on to independence. But James, well, you may you know we we lost New Hampshire in '92. All right, you really I, wanted. I, I don't, but 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 the, the, this is a solution in search of a problem. Black voters have been the the driving force behind the last three Democratic presidents. All right. And and why go in and piss off? Now, now remember, New Hampshire is not a solidly blue state. Stop that you have two Democratic senators. I think you have two Democratic uh, Congress, Congress people. You do. You, there's some chance that Sununu is not going to run for re-election. You have a shot at the governorship. This is something to, to people in New Hampshire. This is like the Super Bowl. All right. And this is going to cost us votes. Well, I can't tell you that we'll lose New Hampshire, but you, you, and there was no reason to do this, right? You could lose the Biden, do anything in, in, in New Hampshire. Hillary beat uh, Obama in New Hampshire. We lost actually. I don't know eight nine points. So I, I, I you and I, I agree with this. And, and you, you, there's a downside to it. You're pissing people off that you don't need to in a swing state. And yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's not James, like- James, if Al Gore had won New Hampshire, which he lost by one point, he would have been president. Forget about Florida. Those four electoral votes would have made Al Gore president of the United States. So and, and right now we know it's likely it's likely to be a close vote in the Electoral College. So you don't just dismiss those four. Right. And the other thing is that New Hampshire is going to go first. I mean, they're by by state law, they're going to go first. Now, then, then what happens is the DNC says, "All right, fine, we're going to kick you out of the convention, and we're not going to count your votes." In the oh, convention. They don't care about that. They're going first, so it's just going to make it messy. Uh, it's right. going to have recriminations. Uh, it could uh, cost them uh, New Hampshire. It's totally unnecessary and dumb. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I just think we're, you know, I'm enamored with New Hampshire, and you know, with people. But it, it was, you're fixing a problem that doesn't exist. Right, right. That's all. You, John, and, and at the cost of, of of really pissing people off, and you don't have to. Right. There's no lack of influence for, for Southern blacks in the Democratic Party. Shit, <laughs> the dominant thing in picking the nominee. Right. Joe Biden finished, I think, was, I don't know, maybe fifth in New Hampshire. Uh, yeah. It didn't matter. When he carried South Carolina and South Carolina, I I believe James over fifty percent of the South Carolina primary voters are black, uh, so they're, oh, they're got to be. And you're forgetting too that the real influence place like Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, uh, North Carolina. I mean, it, it, those are enormously important in the process. Some some people I've heard this idea floated. I, you know, I can't. It's not going to happen. But ideally, you would do. Uh, New Hampshire, then you would do South Carolina, Michigan, and Nevada on the same day because you 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 know you'd have southern, you know heavily southern black state. Michigan is a big you know democratic state with a lot of strong unions and you know pretty pretty substantial black population in particular in Wayne County, and Nevada being you know the swing state culinary union. It's not, not going to happen. I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but I hear that you know. I do too, but I'll tell you what I would do, and no one will pay any attention to it. I'd have New Hampshire go first, and then 10 days later, Nevada, and then uh, 10 days after that, South Carolina, which will probably be determinative, and then Michigan, and then from there, go to regional primaries. 
Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a Paula game, but. Right, it is. That, that's and what you know, we do. The, the people in California said, if you go to regional primaries, no one's going to pay any attention. I said, you know what? I mean, if you're, if you're president of the United States, you ain't going to ignore California. Uh, you, right. You're just not going to. And, uh, you know, particularly if you have Nancy Pelosi there, which sadly we won't have. But by the way, anybody who hadn't seen it ought to look at her daughter's wonderful documentary on Nancy Pelosi, which ran on HBO last night. Uh, it was uh, boy, did it capture uh, one of the most important political figures uh, of our lifetime. And uh, it showed both her toughness and her charm. So uh, watch the HBO uh, Alexandra. Pelosi uh, documentary. Last question, James. We've gotten this before. It's from John in Gurney, Illinois. I, do you know where Gurney is? I do not. I don't either. I John, used to have, my wife is from uh, Calumet City. I had an old girlfriend. Oh, I loved her to death. She was from Street, Illinois. Yeah, I think you did better with Calumet uh, uh, City, uh, Illinois, James. No right. offense to Streeter. Uh, right. John in Gurney, Illinois, asked, we've gotten this kind of question before. Uh, he says, Joe Manchin was the only Democratic senator who voted against paid sick leave for railroad union workers. Now, both of you call out the squad uh, for the progressive members. Why don't you call out Joe Manchin? Well, hey, I, 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 I think that I, 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 it's, I think it's outrageous that these workers don't have sick leave. But, but you, you, Joe Manchin is a fact of life, all right? You needed 50 votes. And, and in fact, voted for tons of judges. You know, the, the whole infrastructure bill, the entire climate bill that was passed that did so much. I, I, I live in a, a world of reality, all right? And, and these progressives going to, to West Virginia to attack Joe Manchin is the most idiotic thing I've ever seen in my life. By the way, that seat is up in 2024. In 2018, the Republicans promised him everything if he would switch as a Republican. But he had he had to he had to fight to win in 2018. He I don't know if he's going to run for re-election, but the only the only way, and I'm, I'm let me repeat this, the only way that we're going to keep that seat is if Joe Manchin runs for re-election as a Democrat. Everybody loses lose it anyway. So I generally, you know, I, I, I want to give a lecture to the progressive caucus on the number 50. See, it's more than 49 and less than 51. But if you don't hit that number, you hit nothing. And, I, I, you know, you're right. He's a more... He certainly has a, 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 a more conservative view of the world than I do. But if the choice is going to be between Joe Manchin and Marsha Blackman. The choice is not going to be between Ed Markey and Joe Manchin, I can promise you. Yeah. Well, uh, James, I completely agree. And I think his vote against paid sick leave for railroad union workers was wrong. I really could not yeah. disagree more with that vote, yeah. particularly when you had I, some Republicans who voted for it. But, you know, right. I think Democrats ought to basically adapt in reverse the old William F. Buckley maxim. William F. Buckley said, I am for the most electable conservative. So they ought to be for the most electable progressive. And the most electable progressive in the state of West Virginia is Joe Manchin. This is the only one. <laughs> right, right. Okay, listen. Those, I, I apologize to those letters that we didn't get to this week. They are so good. It's so hard to choose. Keep them coming. Let us know where you're from, and we'll try to get to them next week. 
Okay, now for the outrage of the week. I think my outrage already has been expressed on Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I'm going to talk about something else. James, the political environment in Washington usually is somewhere between petty and poisonous. As much as we love living here, it can be really refreshing to see other places. This week, at the urging of Jim and Deb Fallows, my wife and I went to Erie, Pennsylvania. It's the fifth largest city in the state, and it has its problems, and it often gets overlooked. But it's committed to dealing with them. It's also a welcoming place for new Americans. The Jefferson Education Society brings in speakers to talk about various issues. It's a convening center for conversations and civic engagement, community improvement, cutting across all kinds of political and generational lines. And Gannon University is a top-flight Catholic institution that not only excels academically, it is deeply involved with the Erie community. Also, by the way, has one of the best women's volleyball teams in the country going all the way to the Elite Eight. So it's nestled far up in northwestern corner of Pennsylvania on Lake Erie. And so you can sometimes escape, Erie can sometimes escape notice. But until you go there, I just wish we could have brought some of Erie back to Washington. It, it, that's great. Got, you know, the other thing, they, they have great hot dogs. Uh, yeah. Mary had a TV show, a producer was from from Erie. And it's, it's, I've been there numerous times in that, uh, I think, call it Perskyle State Park. It, it's one of the most visited parks in, I know, in Pennsylvania, maybe anywhere in the country. It is. It, also Tom had a great, great a great governor, Tom Ridge, the last of the great Republican governors. And, and uh, C-SPAN Steve Scully is from, uh, from Erie. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of them. I remember Lou Tulio used to be the mayor back when I was working for uh, Lou yeah. Tulio, Tulio, Richard Caligari, who was the mayor of Pittsburgh, and Bob Casey all died of the same rare heart disease. It's kind of one Ooh. of the kind of freaky mm. things uh, that that happened. Odds of that happening are, are infinitesimal. I promise you. It, my outrage is I, this German Prince Heinrich the Eighth. This crap is just unbelievable. And rather than me trying to explain it, which I some of it I can't, read New York Magazine by a guy named Adrian Daub, D-A-U-B. It's the most fascinating piece, and he's a professor at Stanford, and he's, you know, some expert on German history. But this thing is all tied into all this libertarian crap and, you know, Peter Thiel or whatever it is. It, 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 it's a story that's going to keep giving, and I think this, this Dr. Dobb or whatever he is, I highly recommend it. <laughs> and you'd say, God, this couldn't be happening in a place like Germany. Oh, yeah, it was happening in a place like Germany. I mean, these people are really crazy. I mean, they claim World War II never ended. <laughs> but, and, you know, they, had, they also had, you know, policemen involved in this and all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, we... we we think it's funny it can't come here, but uh, I'm not too sure. Oh, boy. It may be here. You're right. Yeah, I, I, that article is just, I, I recommend it to all of us. Okay, listeners. New York Magazine, Adrian Dobb, right? Right, Adrian okay. Dobb. It'll, okay. It, it, you won't, you, they're going to make a movie out of this. It, it, there's no doubt about it. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions to us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Lomi, Henson Shaving, and Raycon in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. 
So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.